Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. Stand Up Tragedy is a live show and podcast that's been running for three years now and we've recorded loads and loads of tragic variety because what we do is we get people to come along to the show and stand up and do tragedy and we get people from a variety of different parts of the arts we've got comedians storytellers musicians spoken word artists and more and they come together to look at the sadder things in life with some laughs as well as some tears and we're taking a break from our live shows until february 2015 so to fill in the gap on the podcast we're putting together some special episodes that really celebrate what we think stand-up tragedy is about and showcase some of the amazing performances that we've got over the last few years. Today's episode is Selected Tragedy Volume 4, Tragic Variety. Today's episode is about how at Stand-Up Tragedy what we try to do is find the widest variety of tragedy that we can get our hands on. The performances that you're going to hear are working in lots of different genres. They're doing it in lots of different styles, but they're all looking at the sadder things in life and they're all making really interesting stuff. So today you're going to hear true storytelling. You're going to hear lots of different musicians doing different kinds of music. You're going to hear comedy. You're going to hear a lecture. You're going to hear some fiction. You're going to hear somebody responding to very recent news in a personal way and you're going to hear an extract from a storytelling musical cabaret act and hopefully that will give you an idea of the kind of mix we can sometimes achieve at Stand Up Tragedy and what we're kind of about. Certainly there's loads of other kinds of stuff that we have at Stand Up Tragedy which isn't represented in today's show. Notably we haven't got any poets, we always have a poet or two at one of our shows the one variety of performer that we never manage to capture very adequately in audio form is people doing physical acts or stuff that's very visually orientated. The only way to get those will remain coming to our live shows, but it's a real pleasure to be able to capture so many different kinds of performer and share them with you guys on the podcast. And it's a real, real pleasure and privilege, really, for me to have been able to reach out to so many different kinds of people and so many different kinds of acts and get them involved with stand-up tragedy over the years. This episode, like all stand-up tragedy episodes, really touches on dark stuff. So this is a content note to remind you about that. Today's episode will be touching on the death of Robin Williams, the circumstances around that. It will be touching on death and suicide and disability issues around locked-in syndrome specifically. And the other thing that I'd like to flag up is that some of these recordings are from our really early days where our sound quality is not as high because the great Stephen Harvey had not yet started doing it. He was just doing our sound engineering. He wasn't doing the sound recording. So now sit back, relax and get ready for some tragedy. Our first performance is from... 
the Australian storyteller Alan Girod, who does true storytelling. He did this a few years ago at the Dog Star in Brixton. And you can find Alan at Alan, A-L-L-A-N, Girod, G-I-R-O-D, on Twitter, at Alan Girod. So it's uh, 1984 in Perth, Western Australia, and I was 15 years old. And, and you all remember that age, you know. Uh, the, the cool guys would talk about going to parties and, and being drunk and getting with girls. And, and I, w- I would listen in on this and, and compare it to, to where my life was at, which was uh, chess, um, looking at pictures of World War II fighter planes and, uh, and building Lego, you know. Um, I, I had only one friend, Tony Drayton, and uh, he only had one friend too. Um, we, we sort of had this rivalry uh, where we, we, each of us would see who could avoid being the last one picked for any sporting team. Uh, because we went to a very competitive uh, all-boys private grammar school and uh, it was, you know, obviously pretty exclusive, but I came from a totally different world to the rest of that school. Uh, um, uh, I was just part of a single-parent family, and uh, back then, you know, there was still a lot of stigma around that, and uh, basically mum worked night shift and put every cent she had into our education, my brother, my sister and I. Uh, So as a result, you know, we didn't have much. Uh, We had to live in subsidised government housing, and that house we had was really, really crappy. Uh, We didn't even own a car. And uh, we're on the other side of town, so it was quite a a bus ride to school each day. Um, So although I didn't fit in, I really liked it there and I desperately wanted to stay at the school. But I knew starting year 10 that this would be my final year because the fees just kept going up and the reality was mum just couldn't afford it anymore. But as luck would have it, uh, the year 10 social was coming up. And uh, this was my final chance to be included, to be one of the guys... And uh, basically our school uh, invited the Year 10s from an all-girls school and to, to come to our school uh, for a, a disco that was going to go for three hours on a Saturday night. Brilliant. And, and basically our classes turned into a boiling pot of testosterone as uh, all the cool guys talked about, you know, the girls they knew from that other school and which ones like them or their mates or which girlfriend they were bringing from another school. I thought, how many girlfriends do these guys have? You know, I realised that I needed some serious help. So I talked to the only person I could trust, my friend Tony Drayton. You see, Tony's father was a reverend, and so that meant Tony had to go to Sunday school, and that's where he met girls. (laughs) In fact, he'd already met a girlfriend there just recently, and she was going to the exact school that was coming to the social. So I thought maybe, maybe Tony could find a girlfriend for me. So for weeks, I just pestered him, you know. Um, you know, I, I asked him, you know, are, are there any other girls in Sunday school, you know, any, any single ones? Um, what, what, what about your girlfriend, you know? Does, does she have any friends going to the social... And bingo, she did. There was a friend at, at his girlfriend's school coming to the social. Her name was Nadine. And after a little bit of coaxing, she agreed to meet me at the social. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know what she looked like. And uh, I realised I I didn't know how to talk to girls. Uh, I didn't even know how to act cool. You know, the the other guys, they thought it was hilarious that Tony Drayton, of all people, was setting me up with a girl. 
but I didn't care because I had a date. And all I had to do was get to the social and I'd be like, one of the guys, this was going to be so cool. Now, obviously, uh, Mum couldn't afford to, to buy me a new outfit, so I thought it would be sensible to just wear the best clothes I had. And, uh, you know, come the big day, or night, as the case may be, I got out my only jacket. It was my favourite. It was brown and had, like, light beige flecks woven through it. And uh, it was polyester lining, so, you know, when you slid into it, it felt really smooth. Now, of course, I had been growing a lot that year, so the sleeves were a bit short, but um, I just thought if I adjusted my posture, <laughs> it would probably look okay. And uh, the, the pants I had, really good quality, you know, and the, and the perfectly ironed creases right down the middle. I had my favourite caramel brown leather shoes, Hush Puppies were the brand, and uh, no laces, no, just zips and Velcro tabs. Yeah. <laughs> I had my favourite big collared cream shirt button up down the centre, you know, pretty sensible. It was actually my older brother's. It was a few years old, but it was still in very good condition. And, uh, you know, I, I realised, you know, I didn't have the outgoing personality for an outrageous hairdo, you know, so I just made sure I just had my normal hairdo and I just made sure that the part was perfectly straight. And altogether, I thought I looked pretty smart, you know. Oh, and the only thing that ruined it was we had to take a plate of food. And Mum insisted on me taking something healthy, which was brown bread sandwiches with cheese and Vegemite. Um, you know, if you're not sure, Vegemite's like supercharged Marmite. But, you know. So anyway, uh, the big night's there. Um, oh, buses in our area, they, they finished at uh, about five o'clock. And um, we, we didn't own a car, you know, so Mum called for a cab and great it was going to be here in 15 minutes but it wasn't another 15 minutes went by there's still no cab mum called again and half an hour later still the, the cab hadn't arrived i was just thinking please 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 come on come on come on, come on. it's got to be here it's got to be here any second now any second now mum called again and as she's explaining the situation to the, the operator for like the third time, any distant engine noise. I'm looking up and down the street. And I'm thinking, the cab's got to be here soon. But, but we both knew what was going on. We knew what the operator wasn't saying. See, our area, you know, is rough and a couple of neighbours had a reputation for, for jumping out on cab fares and one time a driver even got assaulted. So, you know, the driver's... Figured, what are, what are the actual chances? You know, they, they didn't believe that there was a kid in this area, on this street, going to a grammar school on a Saturday night. So there I am, looking smart, with my plate of cheese and Vegemite sandwiches and my mum walking up to the nearest highway. We figure it's the only option left, right? Uh, we've got to try and hail a cab in the passing traffic, but none of them would stop. You know, the, the sun's gone down. And uh, I'm making, like, happy chit-chat with my mum, trying to pretend that everything's OK. Inside my head, there's another conversation going on. What's Nadine going to think? Um, what, what do I say to her? You know, I hope she doesn't think that I, that I stood her up. I mean, this just isn't fair. I mean, why does it always have to be this way? You know, I hate it that we don't have any money. I, I hate it that we're not normal. And I really hate that I have to stand here with these stupid sandwiches... 
Eventually a cab stopped and I got in and I couldn't believe it. You know, it was awesome. I had the whole back seat to myself. It was a little bit bouncy in the middle. And then the ride to the social hill was quiet and smooth. And then the driver, he was, he was a nice guy, you know. And he was a good driver too. You could, you could tell uh, just the way he was holding the steering wheel, you know, and he was, he was relaxed and, and in control. And I wondered, what would it be like to have a dad driving? I got to the social and I was nearly two hours late. And the senior master looked at me really weird and asked if I was okay, you know, if it was a problem. I said, no, 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 so, sorry, sir, sorry for being late. No, I'm okay, thanks. I took the sandwiches in, I put them down on the table next to some party pie crumbs and these, these little metal cups that had, like, pink mayonnaise and bits of lettuce in them. And the music it drew me into the main hall and there's Tony. Shit, he... He's dressed like one of the guys from Duran Duran. He, he looks really cool. How did that happen? His girlfriend, she's, she's got this beautiful smile and she, she's dressed like a movie star and he's got his arm around her and, and she's like leaning into him and they're laughing and... Man, that must be a great Sunday school. <laughs> I walk straight up to Tony and... Um, he tried to introduce me to his girlfriend and uh, I, I just tried to explain what was, what was going on, you know. It was like it wasn't my fault, you know. It was just that cab wouldn't come. I mean, you know, you know how it is, you know. I mean, we don't have a car. But where, where's Nadine, you know? Is, is she all right? Do you, do you think I'd still be able to talk to her? You know, is, is she angry at me? Where, where is she? He just points. I look over and there's a girl walking towards her. That, that must be Nadine. I, I don't know what to say. But I figure I just, I just got to be a man. I, I just got to tell her the truth and it should be okay, Right? Oh, hi, my name's Alan. I'm the guy who's supposed to meet you. I'm so... She didn't even look at me. In, in fact, she, she turned away and sort of put her nose up in the air. I, I think she was really annoyed. I, I didn't want to leave it like that. I, I tried to go back to Tony to ask him his advice. You know, he's obviously cool, um, but he was too busy having fun. For the last hour of the social, I watched... Nadine and Tony and his girlfriend and a couple other people just sort of dance in a circle and I hovered around the outside a couple of times. I, I just wanted to explain to Nadine, you know, just have that chance. And I just needed to, to get eye contact with her, so I just kept waiting for her to look at me and just give me that permission, you know, give me the little in. But she never did. I kept trying to understand why she wouldn't talk to me, but I couldn't figure it out. I mean, was, was it because I was late or because I was me? Thanks. The phone rings nine times before he says yes. She's got a problem with Internet Explorer and he's the computer desk. He waits and takes the lift to her floor and says, show me the problem then. She's mildly mortified to find that everything's working again. She flushes bright pink, which he thinks is wonderful. She feels like such a fool, and so she says it 
only works because you're here. Before you came, it was broken. It only works because you're here. You've got my windows to open, Lord. Weeks pass, and that's that, until he gets in late one day to see she's been and posted a post-it note onto his screen that says, could you pop up when you've got a minute? He flies up five flights of stairs to find her computer rebooting and main site IT guy sat in her chair. He is red-faced and out of breath, which she thinks is wonderful. She knows he wanted to help her, and so she says, It only works because you're here. Before you came, it was broken. It only works because you're here. You've got my windows to open my So he pops in to see her when he's passing and also when he's not. She's fairly sure that he feels something for her but she can't say exactly what. He's nervous and he's shy. And that's part of the reason why she likes him. But the vague chance of romance is not enough reason for her to stay. He can't believe it when he hears that she's leaving from her whip round wielding PA. There's not enough room on the card to fit all the words that burn in his heart. She's leaving. It's horrible, he doesn't know what to do Until at her leaving do, he puts his hand to his heart and says It only works because you're here Before you came it was broken It only works because you're here You've got my windows to open, she says. Well, you've left it a bit fucking late. So let's not waste time now. I think you're great. They kiss. Crowd cheers. Main site IT guy goes home in a flood of tears. <laughs> Sad ending of Please don't cry for mainside IT guy. He fell in love with a goth online. Now they've got a dog. <laughs> so I'm very pleased that you ended with that one because it's one of my favourite songs. That you. That was MJ Hibbert playing maybe my favourite of his songs, but I, there, there are some high contenders. Really great to have him at Stand Up Tragedy always. He's played with us a few times over the years. 
What I like about getting Mr. Hibbert onto our stage is that he is a resolutely optimistic man. And I like to sort of try and make optimists have to look at the sadder things in life. It's an enjoyable thing to do. And uh, you can find more music by MJ Hibbert at mjhibbert.co.uk. And he doesn't just make music with his band, The Validators. He also makes musical theatre as well. So there's lots to find out and listen to and follow and get involved with. And next up, we have Gronier Maguire, who is a comedian who says she's going to be doing a comedy set, looking at the sadder things in life through the lens of comedy. You can find her at www.grognermaguire.com. She performed this a few years back at the Hackney Attic. So here's Grognier Maguire. Hi, cocksuckers. How are you? <laughs> it's amazing. I feel like I've gate crashed woman's hour or something. Hey, guys. Who wants to talk about banging? Hello. Are we well? How are we doing? Oh, thank you. That was like somebody just said, I'm doing good. Well, thank you. Again, this is very nice. Very nice, polite audience. Usually I perform in front of shitheads in pubs. So this, I feel a little bit like, remember Jack in Titanic when he's allowed to sit in first class? That's how I feel a little bit. Hey, isn't reading brilliant? Isn't it? Oh, God. Those bloody Tories, eh? Who here likes knitting? Uh, <laughs> we can start, right, what's better, embro- embroidery or knitting? Contur- controversial. I'm dealing with issues, guys. I'm dealing with issues. Something I should flag up, because a few of you maybe thought this when I walked on stage. Um, I'm not as annoying as I look. <laughs> Are we okay with that? That so I'm aware, that you're aware, because I know my look is ghost of a wartime geography school teacher. <laughs> I've got that nailed. Round of applause from the guy at the front, thank you. Um, is it, can you, um, my, my other look of what I look like is somebody who's just come back from a one night stand with one of the famous five. <laughs> also, tick, nailed. Uh, my favourite, I think I look like, um, like <laughs> my, what I'm aiming for is um, somebody Dylan Thomas might have had sex with. That's the dream, that's what I'm aspiring, but I think I overshot and what I've ended up with E.T. when Drew Barrymore dresses him up. <laughs> and that is my range. And I'm kind of happy with that. Because uh, I'm not a very confident person. Do you ever... Like, I'm, I'm, I'm shifty, I'm nervous, and I'm awkward. I'm basically the three lesser-known seven dwarfs. That's me. <laughs> and I think it's, I, I feel guilty, and I don't know why. I just, I'm one of those people that I just walk along the street and I suddenly feel like I'm such a shit person. I'm a shit person. You know, I feel guilty. And I don't know if that's a Catholic thing or like if it's an Irish thing, or if it's that homeless person I killed. <laughs> it's a weird one, isn't it? One for the psychiatrists. Because <laughs> language is weird. It can mean different things, and I find that interesting. Like, take the phrase, one to watch out for, right? Now, if you're a comedian or an MP or writer, one to watch out for, that is a good thing. That is a good day at work. Clap on the back. However, that same phrase applied to you if you work with young children. <laughs> I mean, something completely different. Isn't that unusual? Isn't that strange? Um, any, any fans of politics in? Woo! Who here loves the democratic process? <laughs> you load of commies. 
Uh, I love it because I come from a very political family. And when I say that, what I mean is my mum really fancied Bill Clinton. Like, to an extent that was uncomfortable. During the whole Monica Lewinsky affair, when that came on the news, my mum would stop whatever she was doing and go, oh, if I was Monica Lewinsky, I would have kept my mouth shut. <laughs> yes, said that out loud. With words. With words. And I think I take after her, because, oh, is that Monica Lewinsky? I've got a personality too. No, you don't. That poor woman. Apparently she designs handbags now, so that's a lesson for us all. I take after <laughs> I take after my mum, because I've I have the queer weird crushes. I really my main passion at the moment is Ed Miliband. <laughs> I don't care, guys. Because the more you moan and the more you go, oh, he's awful, he's miserable, he's terrible. Somewhere in London, Ed Miliband is just feeling more vulnerable. <laughs> so like I'm the winner. I'm the winner. I'm, I don't mean to be crude, but like, a ma if a man is that flexible on how to tackle the deficit, imagine what he'd be like in bed. <laughs> You're saying. And the thing is, this is what kills me. David Miliband, he looks like David Miliband, but reflected in a spoon. And that kills me. <laughs> just makes me feel all, all funny inside. But the thing is, I do, it's true, I do come from a very political family, right? And the thing is, if you're from my, if you're my age and from my area of Ireland, coming from a political family kind of means that a certain, there is a certain element of your family that in the 1970s, you just don't ask them what they did, right? You just don't ask them. You kind of go, oh, you know, for certain people in my family, I love the 1970s would be a less jaunty programme, right? Be something different. Less fun, be less of um, what's his name, uh, Peter K on it. Uh, if our family had a family tree, and if that family tree had a special branch, there would probably be a car bomb outside it. <laughs> For the few people who know about uh, Northern Ireland Police Force, you're really enjoying that joke. You're welcome. <laughs> you're welcome. And um, the thing is, because when I moved to London to do stand-up, and my granddad, because he's very traditional, he's very Irish, he's got very sort of old-fashioned views about the British. So he didn't like me moving to London. And I was like, but, you know, I like I really want to do stand-up, and it meant a lot to me to move, to go, but it was always sort of this division between us. And then the very last time that I, I saw him before, before he died, um, I went to visit him in, in the hospital, and I was trying to communicate to him just how important stand-up was to me and how what a brilliant time I was having in London, but I wasn't too sure how much he was able to understand or what he could hear and I was just I was telling him I was like I go and do these gigs granddad and like sometimes they're amazing and they're brilliant you know I'll just go into a room and I'll just kill it I'll just kill it <laughs> and I swear to god like I just saw this little flicker in his eye <laughs> and it was like he finally understood <laughs> And I just thought, this is brilliant. I can, he can hear me, I hear me. And our granddad, the thing is, if I, sometimes I go to a gig and it's just a, a room above a bob, pub and I'll just walk in there. I won't know anybody. And I could just see his little face just lighting up and I'll go, I'll just walk in there and it, it'll go well. And when it goes well, I just blow the roof off the place. And he just looked at me and he was just so proud. <laughs> so proud. Uh, I'm going to leave you on... Um, on, this is true, on the way to a gig the other night, this weirdest thing happened, right? I was walking through Leicester Square, and this man came up to me, and I think the only thing that I can describe what he was doing was, he was chatting me up. It was very strange. And then it was about two minutes into it, I realised what was happening. He was obviously on some sort of course, and he was doing the game. Have you heard about the game? It's like... 
Your mate went on that course. No. There are cheaper ways of, easier ways of getting women if you've got a thousand pounds. That's fair. You can get a whole year relationship of a thousand pounds. That is bonkers. Because he came up to me, I swear, he came up to me and he just was like, oh, I'm just being spontaneous. I'm just being spontaneous and thinking of my feet. And I was just like, this sounds like a magazine article I wrote about men who love women yet hate them. And, um, <laughs> and then he, I felt really sorry for him because I thought if he's that insecure that he's taking a thousand pound course to chat up women, he obviously doesn't me go, need me going, yeah, we're going on a course. So I was like, oh, hello. Yeah, like, oh, this is a nice thing. And then he said, um, I'm just being spontaneous here, but um, I, I, I just obviously think you would be good in a business setting. Are you a businesswoman? I was like, I'm wearing a bobble hat, no. <laughs> and then he said, oh, because I think you'd be obviously very good in a business running, running the business you would run. And then he just stared at my face. He stared at my face for about two minutes and said, running an opticians? <laughs> just got me thinking because it's not his fault he bloody hell it's, it's our society's fault they make it put up so many boundaries they make men and women seem like we're completely different planets and we're completely different we're all more or less the same really and it's like all these pressure that our society puts on men think oh women are so hard to get oh women are awful really mean you need loads of money and oh you need to buy a big penis extender if you're going through a midlife crisis you need a car otherwise you'll never get a woman you'll never get a woman it got me thinking if men truly knew I mean really deeply truly knew just how low most women's standards are <laughs> like really knew like just really took it in like oh yeah 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 no 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 just take it in like really you know breathed it in I thought what all I have to do is text her back <laughs> that's all I have to do I think Western civilization would collapse. <laughs> and I think if women knew just how low most men's standards are, we would just hide our cats. <laughs> we would just, and all animals, away from them. Um, so that's my books. <laughs> that's the book I'm going to release. Women have low standards, men would have sex with cats. Um, I've been Gronny McGuire. Good evening. <laughs>
gave to me. I will not be subjected to steps of sympathy. Sympathy. So this is the final time I'll play this part. No longer held captive in your cold, dark heart. I can't watch you take another mouthful. This torture it has to end. I see the blade clenched in my fist and draw it to your throat. Now uh, I'm just a dead man's wife. No And that was the Worry Dolls who performed with us at the Hackney Attic a few years ago. They blew us all away. You can buy their music, and you should, at www.worrydollsmusic.com. And we're going to have another of their tracks just at the end of the episode to play us into our theme music. So just a little snatch of one of their other songs, because I just like them a lot. thought I'd put them on twice. Next up, we have Alice Bell, who we invited to our night about tragic martyrs. And uh, she's going to do a set about martyrs in science. Having people doing lectures is something that we frequently have at Stand Up Tragedy. And we like to try and expand on what tragedy means and how we talk about tragedy and how we engage with performance on stage so it was really great to have Alice along she does loads and loads of other things you can find out all about them at Alice Bell on Twitter and here she is now closing out our night of tragic martyrs at the Dog Star in Brixton earlier this year so put your hands together for Alice Bell Hi, um, uh, I was going to start with a bit of audience participation that involved a bit of hating on the Daily Mail, because that, that's always a really easy start, I find, especially for those of us who work in science journalism. But then I met someone in the interval who said that they used to work at the Daily Mail. Um, but I think, I think we should just work through that kind of social awkwardness. No. Well, you know. It's not a big hating on the Daily Mail. Anyway, uh, I'll start. I'm going to talk to you about... I work in science journalism. I'm going to talk about scientists and their persecution complex and how 
this is just a bit fucked up and really just makes me really bored and it's really annoying and they just need to get over themselves. And this is a picture of one of a, a scientist that I really admire, uh, but also really, really fucks me off. Um, and this is, does anyone know who this is? Oh, I'm standing in front of him. Yeah, this might not work. <laughs> it's not Craig. I do also really, he really, really annoys me, Dave Venter. But uh, I, Craig Venter, but I don't really admire him, so... Oh, no, this is... Um... Isaac Newton? Oh, God. Isaac Newton was such a fucking cock. Um, right. Uh, no, this is, this is Professor David Nutt. And what I want you to do is... To... Right, so you might have heard of David Nutt. Um, and what I want you to do is... This is the persecuted scientist, and I want you all to, you know, impersonate the persecuted scientist. You can impersonate a different persecuted scientist if you want to, but I think we should go with the David Nutt look, which is the kind of eyes sort of like slightly frowning but kind of a bit hurt but also really angry and a kind of like kind of sneer but also again sort of sensitivity and kind of you've been in pain um to give you a bit of background to help you get into character for the david nutface um so he used to be a government advisor on uh, drugs policy. His research is, he's a neurologist, and he researches the effects of drugs. And he said that particular drugs were safe. And the government went, yeah, but like drugs policy isn't just what the scientists say. It's like lots of other things. And he's like, okay, that's all right. Um, but here's some science. And he, he's, all, he's all keen and enthusiastic with his research. And he turns up in, in Whitehall and he's like, hey, science. And they go, yeah, but, you know, drugs policy is a bit more complicated. He's like, but I've got some more science. Yay, science. And, and, and they're like, yeah, but, but the Daily Mail. Uh, and then he goes, but yay, science. And then they go, but, but the Daily Mail. Yay, science. Daily Mail. Science. Daily Mail. Science. You're sacked. <laughs> which led to the slightly uh, painful hashtag that a lot of science journalists used for months and months and months, which was nutsack. Um, you can still go back and trace this. So he, he left and he made a big fuss about it and he made a big thing about how he, was, uh, he wasn't listened to by the government and how all their ideology just was used to trump his science and he's become the poster boy for evidence-based policy. Now, I agree with a lot. I think he does a lot of good scientific research. I think the drugs policy is more complicated than just what he feeds into, but what he feeds us with his evidence we should listen to, uh, you know, we should, we should listen to people like him, and it, it was kind of terrible what happened to him. Um, but I don't think he needs to elevate it to some big deal about this, to the extent that he was writing in Nature this year, and he said that his, uh, the rejection of his science was equivalent to the Pope uh, rejecting Galileo. <laughs> and now uh, this brings us to the icon of science's persecution complex, which is Galileo. Uh, there were lots of things that happened around the scientific revolution where things that had previously been associated with the church got transferred onto the scientific community. And one of the things that the scientific community kind of stupidly took from the church was this, this idea of the martyr. Um, that you know Jesus had died and been on the cross, and they needed some kind of icon to do that for, to replace that person, and they chose Galileo. And off the back of that has bred so much bollocks. Um, so there's this sort of stuff like, like uh, unhelpful comments from Galileo, because Galileo, he, um, from, see, I'm doing it now, he thinks he's Galileo. David Nutt, David Nutt, you're not, David Nutt is not Galileo, he's just a grumpy neurologist. 
Um, you might have remembered, so there's other th- examples of this, it's not just him. You might have remembered a few months ago, Tesco's for Halloween started selling mental patients costumes, as if this was a joke and really funny that kids might dress up as mental patients. Um, and so Mind and several other mental health charities did a big campaign to complain about that. They had lots of signatures online and they got lots of people who, well, lots of people just like, spontaneously started doing this as selfies of, I'm a mental health patient, I'm, you know, don't look like this. This is what a mental health patient looks like. Way before we had the no makeup selfies and all the ridiculousness of that, we had the mental health patient selfies. Um, and Tesco apologised, realised what they were doing was just ridiculous. This is the 21st century, took down the thing. The Royal Society of Chemistry then realised this isn't the first stand-up that has featured the Royal Society of Chemistry press office. There's several people who make an entire career out of taking the piss out of them. Um, the Royal Society of Chemistry press office then realised uh, that there was a mad scientist costume and kicked up a huge fuss where they went, this is atrocious. Um, you are, we are the same as the mental health patients. And you see, this was my reaction, this kind of laughter, but the Royal Society of Chemistry was indignant and it was an example of the huge social divide between science and society and how much society hated them and how everyone ignored um, the the scientists of what they would give to society and how great society was it led to a lot of selfies from chemists which really broke the mold of our and helped diversify what chemists looked like because there were loads of pictures of white men in lab coats <laughs> if you do like i mean if you look at there are lots of, of women and people of colour and people who wear brown lab coats or no lab coats at all in science. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it is actually quite true, and it, it, it wasn't very helpful. And there were many things that were just really, really wrong with it. One of the things they led on was the idea that, that science should be associated with such violent imagery. And the Royal Society of Chemistry was really angry about the idea that Tesco's was suggesting that science was violent. I hate to break it to you chemists... <laughs> You know, people who help make bombs and stuff. Um, but science is quite violent. And they maybe should, if they're taking all these selfies, they could maybe look at themselves in the process and think about quite how many people in science are involved in industries of war and things that can be quite violent and appreciate that. And if they don't like it, change it. Or if they think that what they're doing is good, stand up for it, but at least be aware of it. Um, there is a, a it's kind of a blind spot sometimes about science, looking at itself. I was at a science event recently um, for kids, and the Royal Academy of Engineering, I love engineers so much, the Royal Academy of Engineering had these engineers save life badges. They're really big. It's true, engineers do save life. I mean it when I say I love engineers. Engineering is awesome. And they have these beautiful engineers save lives badges. Hey, kids, be an engineer, save lives. And it was on a table with sponsored by BAE Systems. <laughs> without any, I would say without irony, but without any self-awareness either. So first of all, Royal Society of Chemistry, look at yourselves. If you think you're violent, maybe if the public think you're violent, maybe they have good reason to. Maybe they understand you better than you understand yourself. Secondly, there was this idea that that they were persecuted in a similar way to the way in which people treat mental health mental health issues. It's not. It really isn't. Um, I noticed that for all that the Royal Society of Chemistry kept adding mind in this to try and get them to encourage other people on Twitter to be part of this campaign, the mind Twitter account was a little bit more concerned with benefits rules changing and how that was affecting mental health, uh, people with mental health problems. Um, It was, you know, they need to think about how rich science is and how really quite respected it is. It's one of the many cases where science really should just check its privilege. Um, but luckily, actually, bits of science do check their privilege, and so I've got some data on this. I was going to show you some slides, but you know, I can't be bothered with it, and you can look it up if you want online. 
Parts of science do check its privilege regularly, um, and they do it scientifically, so they do it with numbers, and they do it regularly every few years. In fact, they audit their privilege in quite complicated uh, ways. And several different bodies do it, so you can uh, compare the privilege of science in the UK to America or Russia. I don't, actually, I don't know what the data is in Russia, but certainly in France or Germany. Um, and it comes out, the most recent data that came out last month is that in the UK... 90% of the UK population think that scientists are trustworthy and are, you know, pretty good people. 90%. That is incredibly high for a trust rating for any profession. It's math. Way higher than the Daily Mail journalists. <laughs> way higher than the Guardian journalists. And way, way higher than the left-wing journalists running some kind of weird blogging co-op, trust me. Um, <laughs> So they, uh, you know, this, and in fact, I think it's actually dangerous, this level of trust. And when you see groups like Quadrilla, who are behind a lot of the fracking, saying there were some leaked um, emails between DEC, the Department for Energy, and Quadrilla that came out through a Greenpeace thing a couple of months ago, where Quadrilla was going, it's great, we've discovered that the, the, the UK people really trust scientists, so we're going to get scientists to say all our stuff for us. And if that's the case, then I think it's kind of behooves science to maybe encourage people not to trust them so much, or think, get the public to think about where they put their trust and ask questions about it. Um, another thing that this sort of, this sort of, I mean, there are, there are differences within science. This whole 90% thing about science is a bit blunt. There are some bits of science that are more persecuted than others. Uh, we shouldn't think of science as all being equal. It's a very complicated body. Um, for example, this week, we've had Boris Johnson in Imperial College launching, launching a new biomedicine project saying how great biomedical science is for London and for the economy and how much he loves science. And, and there was all this applauding. The new scientists were very excited because Boris Johnson said he likes reading new scientists. Meanwhile... Public Health England are preparing data on how many people are dying because of air quality in London and how much research we have into that, which keeps getting told to the mayor and he keeps ignoring it. You know, there are some ways in which, you know, but people like David Nutt don't get listened to. For all that he, has, he can get headlines and get listened to in some positions, he doesn't in others. They may get a lot of money for some areas, but we're just hearing that 125 scientists, well, uh, staff, of which many will be scientists at Q, are about to be made unemployed because what they do is not seen as valuable to the people who currently um, would fund them. You know, there are different ways in which uh, science, you know, science works in different ways, and we need to remember there are different things within that. But this general idea that, that science is not trusted enough by the public and is not liked enough by politicians, and we all just must improve how much we, we love science and that they, they are somehow persecuted by us, it breeds a lot of crap. This Galileo myth particularly breeds a lot of crap. Between people who like to argue about science on the internet, there's this thing called the Galileo gambit, which is the idea that if you are vilified enough and if people say that you're wrong enough, that that means you're truer. That somehow through, through pain comes truth, which is really fucked up. Um, <laughs> So there's this thing, you'll, you'll see it recognisably um, within things like homeopaths. If you keep like, homeopaths get really bullied by scientists on the internet, but they somehow draw some kind of belief that they're right from it. Uh, climate sceptics do it too. There's a whole body in Australia that are quite comical. Um, I slightly feel sorry for them, though, because they do also get bullied, although they, they are peddling a lot of crap, so maybe you shouldn't feel sorry for them, called the Galileo Movement, and they're climate sceptics, and they believe that, that we have just been suffered this big illusion that climate change isn't happening. And they, they draw a lot of their sort of sense of truthiness from the fact that they've somehow been told that they're wrong. Um, but this, this kind of... This persecution complex, so it can breed crap like that if you're not aware to it. You need to at least be able to unpick it. But I think it hurts science too because there's this idea that through pain comes truth. I don't think that's necessarily true. And a lot of scientists will tell you that they, have, they work ridiculously long hours. Being a junior scientist in particular is very, very tough. I mean, I, I laugh about people like David not having a lot of privilege. He, he earns quite a lot of money. He has a very secure job. Um, 
but if you're a junior scientist, you, you often don't, actually. The conditions are quite shit. And um, you can't be expected to do all sorts of like, really long hours. And this is one of the reasons why women drop out in their 20s quite regularly. A lot, it's, I mean, a lot of men suffer from this too, that they just go, fuck it, I can't be asked for this bollocks and leave. Or they just suffer through a shitty job. But you notice it because women drop out, so it's something that you can count. Um, and like this idea that, you know, that, that, that pain gives you truth. Um, sometimes cuddles give you truth. I found truth in cuddles. Or just being able to have hobbies outside your work can sometimes mean you're a better worker. Like there, is a, there should be a diversity of scientists. And if we stick to this idea that you have to suffer for your job, then we're not going to have that. And so I think it hurts science too. Um, so there's another vision of Galileo and the Galileo myth, which I would end on, which I will recommend to you all, which comes from Bertolt Brecht. Uh, he was a great playwright of the mid-20th century and he had a lovely play called Life of Galileo. And he rewrote this after the war in the blazing light of Hiroshima, thinking very differently about scientists. He'd always seen science as hope and wonder and great, and that Galileo was this great martyr. And then he thought, actually, maybe Galileo was probably a bit of a shit as well. And for all that he was good and powerful, maybe he'd been used by people. And he, wrote, he rewrote it to see someone who had been heavily funded by the military and was using all his great ideas he just gave to the military to go and kill people as well as while he's just sort of looking up at the skies if he's innocent about it all who was really horrible to women um, and who didn't really think about the politics and the the complexity of his work and so you have the story of Galileo at the very end Galileo and he's gone through and he's been tortured by the, the, the church until he's lied and said no I don't believe this stuff just to give them the story that the church wanted but Galileo didn't really believe in as a scientist and his old student comes and goes, you know, you've just sold out, you've just lied, you just, because you were tortured, you're not my hero anymore. Pity the, 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 the I think, he, yeah, he says, pity the land that has no heroes. And uh, Galileo goes, pity the land that is in need of heroes. Welcome to the gutter, brother in science. And I think that's a much better view. I'd much rather have my scientists in the gutter than on a cross. And I'd much rather be in the gutter with them. So that's my, my line to end on. Welcome to the gutter, brothers of science. Welcome to the gutter. That is a great way to end the night. And next we have... The Sound of the Ladies, which is the musical name of Martin Oerstwick. Although I think nowadays he also has released his new album under his own name, Martin Oerstwick. So you should check out both of those things. Check out The Sound of the Ladies at www.thesoundoftheladies.com and you can find Martin at Martin Oerstwick, A-U-S-T-W-I. CK on Twitter. So Martin Oswick there. And this song is one of those songs for me that I, I this you're going to listen to the first time I ever heard this song. And for me, and I, I think, you know, it's a good song, but probably, I don't know, there's probably personal reasons why I feel so attached to it. But for me, it's one of those songs which is always going to stay with me. I've listened to it on repeat so many times and it's available on Spotify to do that if you would like to, to do that or you can buy it from Martin. Should do that if you can, but he wants people to hear his music more than more than he wants the money. So please listen to it either way. I've listened to it on repeat so many times because it just, I don't know, it just has that thing where it chimes with something inside me and the lyrics to it and the melody of it just they just speak to something I don't know deep inside me makes me want to cry makes me feel things so I hope that you have a similar experience with it and I'm really pleased that it came into my life and uh, surprised that the first time that a song 
that I care about so much will have come to me first time performed on a stage by someone who I've booked for my night. So that was a kind of amazing and happy moment that I had in the middle of a tragic night. In 1997, I was about 19, and I, um, I, was going, I went to New York for the first time, and my girlfriend at the time, she was out in New Jersey, she was working there, because her dad uh, had, a, had an office out there, he, had, he ran this little company that had an office in, in Britain and an office in America. And I got off the plane in New York, and uh, we were going to have this great holiday together, travel around, go to Boston, go to New York, have a couple of weeks. Gave her a call, because I, I was in New York, she was in New Jersey, and went, hey, it's great, I've just landed, it's amazing, New York's incredible. And she burst into tears and said, my best friend has just died. Uh, so we had a relatively nice trip, given the circumstances. Um, there's not much of a story behind it, much more of a story than that. I feel a little bit self-conscious even writing a song about this, because this isn't my tragedy, this is her tragedy. It wasn't my best friend that died, uh, although it, I, it was me that got the jet-lagged tears of uh, his girlfriend in a payphone somewhere in New York before they had been on mobile phones. So, um, actually, fairly recently I wrote the song about, about um, that happening. Uh, I felt like... I had enough time and distance to purloin that tra tragedy as my own. So uh, this, um, and also this is kind of tied into a lot of stuff about um, being a big fan of the film Heather's. So that kind of leavens it a bit. So this is this is a song uh, called "The Only Girl Who Would Ever Break My Heart." to Greyhound to New Jersey as exotic as that sounds and asked if I could make love to you there inside a stranger's house it's not as if I got turned on by the thought that you might cry but back then that was my answer to everything, that's why When I think about what happened It still leaves a nasty taste She was just a girl with a tambourine around her waist He said our bodies are mystery to us But you didn't even know where your beauty was What I've told you If I'd known from the start You would be the only girl 
Because I already have one I knew that things were not okay But I was not alone Like when I first saw Slacker By Richard Linklater On the small TV at home Well I heard that you got married had a family and caught malaria from a mutual friend and thanks to the power of the internet as we are getting older life takes these things away if we let it well this time I think about Winona I think about Winona She was just a girl when I was just a boy And I think about Winona And I think about Winona She was just a girl when I was just a boy sad story I have to put in references to 90s indie American films to cheer myself up um, yeah hello good evening um, my name is Louise Morris um, yeah sorry I'm a bit nervous um, <laughs> um, yeah right well okay yeah as, as David said I am here to um, tell you a story um, this is um, the first time I've felt able to tell this story and um, I thought that stand-up tragedy might be a good platform for it because it's a story that I'm going to want to take um, yeah take take further um, essentially what I, I need to give you a bit of um, background information um, in that um, this is a story that was written by my mother now, my um, mother suffered a severe stroke and that left her with um, cerebromodella spinal disconnection, which I don't know um, 
well, it's, it's, it's basically, it's locked-in syndrome. So she was unable to move, unable to eat. She's completely paralysed. Um, have any of you read um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? Yeah, so, yeah. Um, my, my mother was able to communicate in a similar way. Um, she has written this story using her eyelids. And, yeah, I would... Um, I'd like to um, take this opportunity to, to read it for you now. Um, thank you. Can I have the stand back? Thanks. Sorry, yeah, bear with me. My mum always loved yellow, so I've backed it onto some jaunty yellow card for you to look at. Um, so, this is the house that Jack built by Linda Morris. The bedroom is our den. The carpet is the softest you've ever felt beneath your feet. Years we spent saving up for it. We argued a bit about the colour, but in the end he agreed that beige was less risky than cream. It infuriated him, the idea that we might have something in our house that wasn't perfect. Sometimes I think I can feel it on my toes, even though I couldn't feel it now if you wrapped me up in it. Jack always said a bedroom should be a place you'd be happy to be trapped in if it came to it. You don't want to be sick in a room you hate, he used to say. I don't suppose that he ever imagined that either of us would be this sick. He liked to be prepared for the worst, though. This is a man who insisted on keeping an apocalypse cupboard. That's actually what he called it. It was full of cans of things you wouldn't normally eat. Tinned peaches, rice pudding, sardines... I used to donate some of it secretly when they were collecting for food parcels at the church. I float around the house on the loneliest days like an old lost ship. It's amazing what you can recall when recall is all you've got. It feels more real than reality most of the time. The slide of the bathroom door followed by the clink of the lock, the creak on the fifth stair photo of Louise above the hall table. We have to sell it now. What choice is there? You can go anywhere in your head, but I always end up at home. I can't resist it. The alternative is reality. Mint custard walls and thin pink curtains. Nurses I can't ask to speak more quietly. And the towering shadow of the drip beside the bed. My living room is my favourite place in the world, the cherry mantelpiece, hand-carved. It took him years. I didn't think he'd finish it, and then it was my birthday. Probably about six years after he started it, 
I'd gone to my mother's for a few days, and when I got back, there it was, a great roaring fire framed in the surround like a painting. The look on his face. You could tell it was worth all the splinters, those long Sundays locked in the garage. Jack busied himself with the dining room after my stroke. He told me that himself. Not that he thought I could hear him. Talk to her, the doctor said. I could almost hear him rolling his eyes. He was always like that. We had a cat years ago, and he refused to speak to her. What's the point in talking to something that can't understand you? He'd say. I'm here, I screamed over and over again. Please find me. I'm here. But he never did. I thank God for small mercies. I know that room better than I know the back of my own hand. I can visit it any time. He even made the curtains, would you believe? Not many people can say that their husbands made their curtains. I chose the fabric, of course. You can't trust a man with fabric. They only end up copying their mothers. <laughs> he wanted this house to be his. Ours. I used to joke that it'd never be finished, that as soon as we got anywhere near to finishing it, he'd take it all apart and start again. It wasn't all that much of a joke. Louise says he never finished the dining room. She can't bear to go round. It's like watching your childhood crumble, she says. I asked her if she wanted to live there. It's all paid off, you see. But she just wants it gone. I'd like to know that one of us could still live there, but, well, I understand. In the end, the less he believed I could hear him, the more he'd talk. It's like he became desperate, as though he'd run through his can't-talk-to-things-that-don't-understand barrier and come crashing out the other side. Then he was talking more than he would have if he thought I was conscious. He said the house felt enormous without me, like a haunted old mansion, he said, except the ghosts are in my head. I'd will my hand to reach out and touch him, anything to let him know, but nothing would move. He was unravelling, and I was a sodding statue. We understood each other, he once said. And then there was a silence as thick as smoke. When he breathed in, it was like he was sucking all the air out of the room. You understood me like no one else could, he said eventually. Now you don't even know I'm here. I'd have sold my soul and his to let him know. Inside, I was tearing at my skin to be let out, but on the outside, nothing showed. They didn't tell me for months. Well, they didn't know I was in there, did they? It was an agency nurse who picked up on the blinking. It takes a fresh pair of eyes sometimes. Problem is, this thing's so rare. It was too late by the time they realized. Much too late. 
The last day I saw him must have been a Sunday, because songs of praise was on the telly. The telly's on all day. I suppose they think it fills the silence. No one asked me what channel I'd like. He looked worse than I've ever seen him. Didn't look like he'd washed in days. He cried. He actually cried. The first tear in 37 years of marriage, and I couldn't even bloody wipe it for him. And then that was it. He never came back. I visit the house every day from the inside of my head. Only instead of looking out at the street, I look in at our lives. It's perfect when I'm awake, but when I'm asleep, things happen. Dreams are a curse. You can't control them. The wallpaper peels, plaster falls from the ceiling like dandruff. His mantelpiece is cracked and mildewed. I walk around calling his name and then I wake, hot and frightened, dying to sit up and catch my breath. I lie corpse still and stare at the hospital ceiling, the sinister crack creeping above my head. I was as good as dead when he thought I was a vegetable. He was all on his own and there was nothing he could do about it. Jack needed to be in control. Always did. I knew before they told me. You couldn't miss something like that. Louise just went silent. She was always the one who was good at talking to me. Keeping me up to date with going... with, with what was going on. Telling me funny stories about people at work or giving me the latest instalment on the neighbours. The first day she came in and, and didn't say a no, and didn't say a word. I knew it had to be her dad. She just held onto the bedclothes and screwed up her lips. When they realised I was functioning, mentally, I mean, one of the nurses told me Louise wasn't up to it. Tablets, apparently. Massive overdose. They said there was a tally chart. How many he'd taken. What kinds. Only Jack would keep a running total. Only Jack. Now this is all I have. His place in my head. The place my Louise grew up. This is the house that Jack built. And it's all that's left of him now. So that was a piece of fiction by the author Jay Adamthwaite. It was performed by the actor Becky Malt a few years ago at the Dog Star in Brixton. You can find more writing by Jay Adamthwaite over on her website www.jadamthwaite.co.uk. And next, we have a little clip from our most recent show, actually, Tragic Horror, which we had at the Hackney Attic in October this year. And this is a little clip 
from the musical storytelling cabaret group, The Mechanisms. They did a 45-minute set where they took fairy tales and ran them through a sort of blender that was with blades that were made of science fiction and steampunk and put together this kind of story about stories, which were scary, horror-filled, which fitted the theme really well and also contained plenty of tragedy. So you can listen to the whole thing on the podcast that went out a few weeks back, Tragic Horror Act Three. But here's a snippet from it now. You can find the mechanisms at themechanisms.com. Stone on a moss 
covered stone. When the soldiers came for Rose, they killed everyone at the wedding. There were only two survivors. The first was Snow, who managed to crawl to safety, though badly injured, and she lost much of herself in the process. No longer safe on New Constantinople, Snow gathered what allies she could, warriors, nobles, diplomats, and fled towards the safety of the periphery on the SS Anderson. But they were betrayed. A bomb, hidden in their food shipments in a crate of apples, detonated, crippling the ship, leaving it floating in space. So here is Tama Katan, who's a comedian. He did this set at Stand Up Tragedy in Edinburgh earlier this year. And he did two sets in Edinburgh, and both of them are going to be featured in the Selected Tragedy series because they were really amazing sets and they were really appropriate for Stand Up Tragedy. This is the second one that he did for us, and it's basically a reaction to the death of Robin Williams, which happened whilst we were at the Edinburgh Festival. Tamakatan is an American comedian. You can find this comedy at www.tamakatan.com. That's T-A-M-E-R-K-A-T-T-A-N. For Tamakatan! Hi, guys. You guys heard about uh, Robin Williams killing himself, right? Yeah. Uh, that freaked me out. Uh, so I, I'm writing about that. Uh, so I didn't get much sleep, so forgive me. I'm not performing this. I'm more reading it because I wrote it last night. If dream catchers worked, I'd get better sleep. I wish they did. Uh, so part of this, because I moved from Egypt to America when I was like eight years old. I immigrated. And uh, do you guys remember Mork for Mork? Yeah. yeah. So that was a really important show to me. And also there was one other film that Robin Williams did called Moscow on the Hudson. And uh, those two things are really important to me, and that's, that's what I wrote about. So um, here it is. Uh, moving from Egypt to America, from the third world to the first world, was a lot like moving to another planet. So it's no surprise that my first hero was an alien who seemed to be from a kinder, gentler place. After our first few difficult years in the U.S., I uh, discovered a show called Mork and Mindy. Robin Williams was Mork for Mork, an alien from a foreign planet, just like me. And that somehow made me feel less alone. The only other thing I had ever watched was, as much as a boy, was a film called The Black Stallion. And when my mom asked me why I kept watching that film so much, I said it was because the horse was a hero, and for once in an American film, the hero was Arabian. <laughs> Later in life, I heard that that short conversation had made my mom cry. Uh, but Mork for Mork was bigger than The Black Stallion to me. He was an alien on Earth who made me feel better for being an alien in America. He constantly made silly mistakes, which made me feel okay about the fact that I did too. My accent made me an outcast. No one wanted to sit next to the kid who, on the very first day of school, unintentionally but very loudly, went up to the man behind the cafeteria, behind the counter at the cafeteria, and said, I'd like a piece of chocolate cock, please. <laughs> I cringe when I now recall that the man I asked for that piece of cake was black. <laughs> But I also smile remember, when I remember that he laughed um, so hard that he had to cup his hands over his mouth and ran away from his post in hysterics. His laugh pleased me a lot. He told me he never laughed that hard at work um, before he put his hand on my shoulder and gave me, a, gave me a big piece of chocolate cake. 
I still feel the touch of his hand on my shoulder and the warmth of that genuine smile on his face. I needed that. I needed it the way a dehydrated athlete needed water. This moment made me feel special. It made me feel like I was funny, something I knew not everyone was. Until then, I'd felt like a caterpillar in a school full of butterflies. This moment was my cocoon. His laughter softened my embarrassment. His laughter made me laugh at me and taught me that it was okay to laugh at my mistakes because sometimes those mistakes create moments of joy. So again, I related to Mork for Mork because mis his mistakes brought me moments of joy. Robin Williams also made a film called Moscow on the Hudson, an amazing film about being an immigrant. An important film, I thought, because sometimes in America I felt that people were mean to immigrants. Um, and I feel that, that they didn't empathize with how difficult it was to, have, to move to a new country. We were aliens, after all, not human. I remember mo watching Moscow on the Hudson uh, in our first apartment in America, an apartment I remember well. It had a big kitchen window and a flower box full of mint leaves overlooking Sunset Boulevard. To this day, every time I smell mint, I see 70s Hollywood in my mind's eye. One early morning, that street was especially loud and filled with what looked like these giant colorful ants. But when my eyes adjusted to the morning light, those colorful ants transformed into tiny people running in the LA Marathon. I'd never seen a marathon before. Egypt had no room for such an event in its overpopulated streets. As I watched, my, my brain began to digest this new concept and I began to envy the people running below. I envied how strangers on the sidelines would help and cheer people on and hand them water and give them words of encouragement. They ran mile after mile towards their exhausting goals. And I thought, why couldn't people be that kind of immigrants? We were chasing an exhausting goal too, but no one offered support from, from my sidelines. My immigration marathon was filled with people yelling mean things like, learn to speak English or uh, go back to where you came from. I hadn't become fully American yet, and people reminded me of that daily. Uh, I watched Moscow on the Hudson that same night that I experienced the LA Marathon, and that's when I began to grow very fond of Robin Williams. I was very young, but I had already noticed a pattern in his characters. He played, uh, the characters in his pro that he played in his prolific career all had the eyes of an outsider. Every single one had the facial expression of someone who wanted to fit in with others. So I didn't just like Mork for Mork anymore. I loved Robin Williams. Robin Williams did a lot of things for me that I wish my own father knew how to do. He comforted me and he made me feel less alone. I imagined what it would be like to have him as my father when my dad wasn't around. See, my dad was abused and that led to me being abused. I don't blame my dad for this anymore. I understand the dynamics of abuse now. I understand that the person who abused my dad was a vampire and that that vampire had bit my dad, turning him into a vampire. And as hard as my dad tried not to, my dad ended up biting me. And now I have to work really hard to not be a vampire. It's why I've stayed single my whole life. I'm afraid of me. I'm afraid that the house my soul lives in is haunted, so I'm too afraid to let anyone move in. I'm afraid of having a kid and treating him the way my dad treated me. My dad died 12 years ago, but sometimes in the morning when I'm brushing my teeth or washing my face, I'll make an identical expression to one he would have made. My face will become his face, but just for a brief moment, and I'll quickly look away or I'll throw water on my face as if to wash it off, needing to bring the expression uh, to one that looks like me again. Sometimes I'll even say the words, you're not a vampire, to the scared face in the mirror, out loud. So Robin Williams was medicine for my fears because he was the opposite of vampire. Where vampires suck the life out of people, he would blow joy and life back in, like someone performing an emotional version of CPR. Now that I have grown up to become a comedian, 
he's left me with one final important life lesson in the tragic taking of his own life. If you choose the noble profession that this man did, if you choose to blow life and joy into people, you must always remember to stop before you run out of breath. Thanks. Tamakatan, everybody. And to play us out, here's Emily Capel, who we just love at Stand Up Tragedy. We've had her on twice. She's not really almost appropriate for us because she doesn't have that much in the way of sad material, but we really love what she does. She's got a tremendous stage presence and spirit, and I'm very pleased to be able to include a little snippet of one of the sets that she did for us now. You can find more of her music at emilycapellmusic.weebly.com, and that's Emily C A P E double L. So here's Emily singing about smiley culture. And then after that, we're going to have a little snippet and not even a full song of the Worry Dolls before we go into our outro theme. So I hope you enjoy this musical section of the show. See you next week for our Christmas special. It's going to be an edited version of the tragic Christmas gig that we did last year. It really is very heavy on the tragedy as well as on the amazing pieces of work. There are lots of laughs as well. There always are at Stand Up Tragedy, but it's in the bleak midwinter. It's a very, very bleak episode that touches on many tragic themes. So I'm going to sing a song called Hookah smiley culture now i don't often play this but because this is so like in a lovely way singing in your living room you're all like here um so i'll uh, i'll sing it to you thanks so much Grind gets so near If they come a-knocking I say you weren't here Yeah, I am cool, man I know the rock man With two snooker balls Tied up in a sock, man The real Slim Shady Just stood up And put one of his fingers On each hand up And the streets are now empty But the popo's still there And there's me thinking I'm so insecure and I am more qualified than Professor Green And that little ginger's got nothing on me So listen up, baby, to the things I taught ya Who killed Smiley Coaster? Well, it's all right for me I'm not in the business of the lies that you told Little Wayne and his missus Whipping the lovers you knew couldn't hack it Just to sell stories on what's up his bracket And I look alright in them apple bottom jeans By the boots with the fur they did Nothing for me So listen up baby to the things that you order Who killed Smiley Culture? West side, west side, I'm gonna set this night on fire. West side, west side, I'm gonna set 
this party on fire Set it on fire I'm gonna set you on fire podcast has been produced by me and put together by me with sound production from Stephen Harvey with some interviews and some extra production from Bryony Hawkins with music at the beginning from Sam Wilkinson and playing us out with The Tragedy Is Over, George Brufton and The Reactionaries. It's time to go.